this message was recorded at Vision Baptist Church in Alfred, Georgia. It is our prayer that you will be blessed by the preaching of God's Word. All right, we're going to have a question or two, and then we'll have a preacher. So let's have that first question. How can I find comfort when an unsaved one, loved one has died? Well, uh, I don't know that you can. Uh, all you can do is know this. I guess the only comfort I would find would be my uncle Frank, uh, my dad's uh, next to the youngest brother, was a notorious alcoholic and a very wild liver. I grew up all of my life knowing that Uncle Frank called about once a month on a collect phone call. Back in the old days when you had telephones that hung on the wall and you answered them and you could get a collect phone call. And uh, so, you know, we would answer the phone. We was excited to hear the phone ring and we'd answer the phone. And Uncle Frank would always call and uh, collect call from Frank. And uh, Dad said, no, we never accept those calls and uh, you're not to talk to your Uncle Frank when he calls. I don't want to pay the bill. He got married. He'd get married at night and divorce the next day for real. Just a crazy guy, and I loved him. He was like one of my favorite uncles. I don't know what drinking does to you, but man, he was a sweet guy when he was sober. And uh, so he used to drive me around. So when I got, we were grown. Ben and I were already married. I witnessed to him a lot. Tried to tell him about Jesus, explain the gospel to him. I don't know that he ever got saved. I highly doubt that he got saved. And the only comfort I found was I had tried the best I could to share the gospel, and he'd chosen not to trust Christ as his Savior. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in, in our families that are going that are, to they're, they're die without Christ. And if I were you, I would do everything in my power to witness to them while you can. Uh, I'm sure every mystery can tell you the story, but Victor Ocampo was sitting in my office in Arequipa back in 1989, and Victor was a, a new Christian. He was coming to our church, and, I was explaining heaven, and I was explaining hell, and I was explaining uh, salvation. And, uh, and these guys had never, ever heard the gospel. And I made the comment, you know, your own family has died without Christ and they're in hell. And Victor, a little bit angry, said, well, why did it take you so long, and why didn't you get down here? Because why did my grandmother have to die and go to hell? And I had absolutely no words. I never try to tell somebody, well, maybe they went to heaven. I just say, if they didn't trust Christ, they didn't go to heaven, and so... There's not a lot of comfort. Hell's a horrible place, and I think it ought to break our hearts. Next question. How should a Christian deal with feelings of guilt regarding past sins, whether pre- or post-salvation? I'm actually preparing a study on that for you. It'll be available within the year. I mean, literally. Uh, not this year, but within 30, 365 days, Lord willing. Um <clears throat> God is not in the guilt business. Okay, so look this way just a second. God is not in the guilt business. I grew up with a God that I don't even know. I grew up with a God through a prism of uh, preachers, Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist preachers, revivalists. I grew up with this God that uh, loved me to live guilty. I, love, I grew up with preachers threatening me. I grew up with never being able to live up to it, and so I think most of us have. So let me explain something to you. When you got saved, when you got saved, every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future was all taken care of. I have people say to me, I understand how my past sins got saved, because when I accepted Christ, He forgave me for my past sins. And I say, well, He didn't die when you got saved. 
You didn't catch that. He didn't die when you got saved. He died a long time before you got saved. So he, his, if, if his death took care of your sins in the past, they were future sins when he took care of them. There's teaching in Hebrews chapter 7, which I won't go into, about uh, 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 Levi being in the loins of Abraham when he paid tithes. And so I would just say to you that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And you don't have to feel guilt. You don't have to feel guilt. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be responsibility. You know, if you did something wrong, you should, you should bear the responsibility. If you were, while you were, uh, before you got saved, if you killed somebody. It's not like you get saved and you say, well, whew, now I don't even have to think about that. Well, you're going to think about that. But guilt is a different question. And guilt is, I am guilty, but Jesus took my guilt. I am guilty, but Jesus took my guilt. And I am not under condemnation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Walk not the flesh, but after the Spirit. However, you, don't, you always, I was brought up to think, I'm in the flesh now, now I'm in the Spirit. Now I'm in the flesh, now I'm in the Spirit. That's not biblical. According to Romans chapter 8, if you're in the flesh, you're not saved. According to Romans chapter 8, when you got saved, you're in the Spirit, period. Two families, Spirit and flesh, and I'm in the Spirit family. If you're in the Spirit family, your sins have been taken care of by Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, the Bible says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Shall not come into condemnation. Condemnation is one of them guilt words. So all of my guilt was placed on Jesus. Now, I am responsible uh, after I'm saved, if I, if, if I were to go out here and get drunk, drive down the road and hurt somebody, uh, I'm not forgiven here on this earth for that. Uh, I would, it, it doesn't affect my salvation, but you are responsible, and there are consequences. But guilt is something I can't fix. Guilt is something I can't get rid of, and so somebody wants me to feel guilty, that would be the devil. You need to feel conviction. You need to feel bad about your sin. You need to feel bad enough that you run to the cross. Do you remember in Exodus, you found the, the, the books of the, the, the tablets, the testimony, the book of the testimony is in the ark under the mercy seat. And the mercy seat's above that. And the blood's applied to the mercy seat. And he said, I will meet with you in the mercy seat. He doesn't meet with me in the guilt seat. He meets with me in the mercy seat. In Colossians chapter 2 my sins and all that was against me were nailed to the tree. So here's what I would say to you. You're, still, you're always going to have to repeat Bible truth to yourself. You have to repeat Bible truth to yourself. Because you can know all the Bible facts, but then you'll get discouraged. You'll get depressed. Somebody will say something. Your, test, your own conscience will say something to you. And your conscience will make you feel bad. So you have to repeat Bible truth. You have to repeat Bible truth. You have to remember the Bible says something. I have to say that and believe that and not believe what everybody else says. You could easily, you could easily begin to feel guilty for something you've already been forgiven for. So then you'll just repeat, no, this is what the Word of God says, and that helps you. If you failed, you know how much your Father loves you? He loved you while you were yet a sinner. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God committed His love toward you even while you were yet sinners. Christ died for you. That's what the Bible says about it. First John chapter 4, maybe verse 9, something like that. The Bible said we love him because he first loved us. And so salvation is a beautiful thing. It's God taking all of my guilt and all of my sin and all of my failure and all of my mess and putting it on Jesus and turning to me and saying, 
I'm going to take your junk out of your book, put it in Jesus' book. I'm going to take his righteousness out of his book and put it in your book. And so in the eyes of God, I'm forgiven. Now, that doesn't forgive me for down here. If you're driving down the road, you're doing 100 miles an hour, and a cop pulls you over, you can't look at him and say, hey, look, buddy, no condemnation for me. He'll say, maybe no condemnation, but speeding tickets, yes, amen. You earned it, you're getting it. So, so uh, I would just say to you, don't listen to the lie. Learn to believe Bible truth. You've got to have a whole new way of thinking. That's why you need, you need Romans chapter 12. It says, uh, 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 be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you can't think like people on earth. You've got to think, what's the Bible say? And the Bible gives you hope in Jesus and what he did on the cross of Calvary. One more question, brother. I'd be glad to talk to you about that more if somebody has a personal issue there. I've been hurt and burned by church in the past. How can I overcome this or renew a passion for church and a desire to attend church? Well, my first answer is, it's not a church issue. It's a Jesus issue. Okay, so I'm in love with Jesus. And since I'm in love with Jesus, I'm going to do what he wants me to do even if people burn me. Churches have people in them. I'll just go ahead and warn you, you're probably going to get burned again. As long as there are people in churches, as long as people are pastors, as long as people are deacons and Sunday school teachers and, and disciples, you're able to get burned. Uh, I would hope that Vision is trying to help you with that. I would hope that you could come to our church and say, I'm loved here. I'm not judged. I hope that you would do that for other people. I hope you'd come into church and say, this isn't like the judgmental churches I've been a part of. Those judgmental churches are based on, on a false understanding of righteousness. When you build righteousness by rules, then you build Pharisees. When you build righteousness by, by what I do and what I don't do, then I can condemn you for what you do and what you don't do. But when you come in and all of us realize, hey, man, I'm just a bum saved by the grace of God. I don't deserve it. Uh, and I, I don't have any right to be saved except for the great mercy of God. Then I can look at you with that same mercy. And so here's what I think personally and what it would would be a driving factor in my life. I consider how many people have been burned by pastors. I have a more negative attitude about pastors than I do churches, just to be blunt honest with you. I am a pastor, so I think I have a right to be aggravated with pastors. And so many times I think pastors have hurt so many people. I think so many people haven't heard the truth because a pastor was misguided, misdirected, didn't understand the Bible, didn't understand. I spent many years hurting people. Because it's what I heard all of my life. And I played the rules game and the morals game and the separation game and the I'm, I'm one better than you game. And so I would say to you, here's what I decided. I can't do anything about other churches. I can't do anything about other Christians. And I can't do anything about other pastors. I can love people. I met with a pastor this week who came to visit us from Maryland. He met Ben Johnson and wanted to know about Vision Baptist Church because this is an unusual church so when he missionaries out of it and all that so he wanted to meet with us and he came and we had lunch and we were talking about our ministry and i told him i said i know good and well i can't do a program as good as most can i know i can't preach as well as most can but there's one thing i can do better than almost anybody i can love people i can love people and you can bring in a better tv player we can put a tv player up here and bring in great preachers but he can't love you but i can so here's what i'd like to challenge you do you know how we're going to get over this bad church thing Want you to start loving people. Let's turn this place. It is this kind of place already. Let's just make it about ten times better. Let's just turn it into a place where when folks come in, they know I'm accepted. 
I'm accepted. They don't judge me. They don't look down on me. They don't criticize me. They love me. Now, we don't love sin. No, we don't love sin. We don't love doing wrong, but we love people. And if we do that, then other people will want to come to church like that. I think people want to go to church where the Bible's taught. I think people want to go to church where people love Jesus and people love people. And I think that will get people over some of the bad, bad issues. So you can't really move forward in your personal life till you forgive. And we've all been done wrong. Uh, I'm sure you heard the story, you know, about the guy that goes to see the psychologist and, you know, he was a murderer and a, a child molester and all these things. And he sees that psychologist and the psychologist digs into his past and finds out all of the reasons he was like he was. And come to find out his mother locked him in a closet when he was a child and somebody else did something else to him. And when he, came, when he, gets, through the, when he gets through with all the psychologists, he says, they make me feel real good. I know I've killed people. I know I've abused kids and I know I've done a lot of stuff wrong. But one thing about it, ain't none of it my fault. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? The truth is, I can't ever think like that. But here's what, I, here's what I can think. I can forgive people. You have been done wrong. But as long as you walk around with a chip on your shoulder, as long as you walk around a little bit uneasy, a little bit angry, a little bit aggravated, you're still going to act just like them. And I hate to say this, but when you hate somebody, you actually start imitating them. It may be a mirror image. It may be the opposite of it. But you can be just like them without trying to be. So let's look at Jesus. Let's love Jesus. They brought a woman to him, take it in adultery. His answer would be, hey, woman, don't do that anymore. Where are your accusers? Now go and sin no more. Sweet, wonderful, kind. Matthew chapter 9, he's on his way with a, with a rich man, a ruler, excuse me, a ruler of the synagogue. He's on his way with him till his child and a woman who's nasty with a, 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 a bad disease for 12 years touches his garment. He takes the time to heal. He gets to blind people. You recall, he gets to... He gets a demon-possessed guy who can't talk. He heals everybody in the town. That's who we are. Let's just love people. As a church, love people. They come in the door. I don't care what color they are. I don't care if they're an illegal uh, alien here in our church. They've, they've swam the river. Swam the river. they got to cross that river somehow. And they're here in America. Love them. And I don't care if they come in here and, and uh, you know, they got tattoos on top of tattoos and earrings on top of earrings. And, and they got the big old lip thing like they do someplace in Africa. Just love them. We just love people. Amen? We love Jesus. And you can't live. If you love Jesus, you're going to love people. He's a people lover. And so let's do that. And I think it will help us to get over it and help them. Let's just love people. Amen? All right. Let's have another question. Okay. Uh, we got several, so we're going to change the order of service so I can get through them all. What, what you got? I don't know what it says about that. Um, as a joke, y'all supposed to laugh. Uh, thank you, Ty. Appreciate that courtesy chuckle. What does the Bible say about controlling your temper? Well, let me see. What does it say about so be not angry, be yet be angry and sin not? Uh, what's the Bible say about controlling your temper? You know the term controlling your temper. How about I go to Ephesians chapter five? Let's see. Uh, maybe it's four. Let me look real quick and. Uh, uh, let me make sure where I am before I tell you. Let's see. Somebody, one of you smart people, tell me: Be angry and sin not. Is Ephesians chapter four twenty six? Ephesians four twenty six. So I would say to you: There are right times to be angry, and there are wrong times to be angry. Uh, we ought to be angry. Jesus got angry. 
So if you were if you uh, were to try to act like we should never get angry, then you'd be making a major mistake. You live in a politically correct world that is totally biblically incorrect. Uh, we ought to get angry. We ought to get angry about sin. I mean, you know, mothers against drunk driving. What do you think about that? I think they're great. Get mad about it. Well, why should there be drunk drivers? We ought to get angry about that. Now, I don't need to get angry about that in church, but Jesus himself got angry and went into the temple, uh, and, and he overturned the tables, and he used the and he used the whip, and he, and he, you know, you would have said that was wrong. He, he wasn't wrong. He was doing the right thing. He said, my house should be called a house of prayer. Uh, so there's a right time and a right way to be angry. But I would say the majority of us don't really have to deal with that. I don't need to be getting angry with, obviously, with my wife. I don't need to be, I don't ever need to lose control. I don't think I ever ought to lose. I'm not saying I don't. I'm saying I don't think I should ever lose control. When you lose control... That's wrong. Better is he that uh, uh, controls his spirit. It said in Proverbs, so somebody find it, Jeff. Uh, better is he that controls his spirit than dominates the city or that conquers the city. John Pearson, Proverbs what? Thank you, Pastor Bo Carpenter. That is a 21-year-old pastor that's smarter than a 60-year-old. Amen. Are you smarter than a 60-year-old? Yes, you are. And so look at that. He that had no rule over his own spirit is like... A city that's broken down and without walls. You're not to hang around angry people. We're not supposed to hang around angry people, according to the book of Proverbs. He that hath no rule over his own spirit. But, you know, it's not just about anger. Some guys, man, they just can't quit crying. I'm like, good night. Get a, get a grip. Why do you always have to cry? Why do you always have to be mad? Why do you always have to be moody? Why are you always down? You know, why do you let your emotions control you? That's really what that verse is about. He that had no rule over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. There's other verses that you could throw in there. So I would just challenge every one of you. We ought to be in control. Lost people are out of control. We're in control. The Holy Spirit gives us control and helps us control it. Uh, I ought to be a fairly even-tempered person. That's a word they used to use. I don't know if it's used anymore. Even-tempered. Kind of like the guy you see today is kind of going to be like the guy you see tomorrow, which is going to be like the guy you see the next day. I worked with a man in one of the churches that I worked for who was the highest level of excitement you could ever imagine. I've never known anybody more excited, more pumped up than him. I've never known anybody that was worse than him. I mean, one time I helped him unload like 30 bags of garbage and it just... He, he was discouraged and depressed, so he couldn't even carry out the garbage. And then one day, he woke up and he decided, I'm going to be back in control. And so we unloaded his garbage. But I was in control with him, helping me get his garbage out. He taught me how to go soul winning. He taught me how to do so many of those things. And one day, I show up and I say, let's go. And he was discouraged. I said, you know, I don't know why you get discouraged. On the mission field, guys can't control their spirit. They get upset. Women are famous for it often. Don't do it. Let's get control. How about the next question? What's the Bible say about eating disorder? You know what I saw? You know, I'm a sight reader. And I said, I saw what does the Bible say about eating dis, dis, uh, dinosaurs? And I was going to say, it's really not a problem. I'm a sight reader. I don't sound words out. I thought that said dinosaurs. I was like, who in the world? <clears throat> Bulimia, anorexia, anorexia, however you say that, anorexia, and gluttony. What's the Bible say about it? Bible verse, Bible verse. Um, 
We're not to be gluttons. I, that, we could get a verse on that in Proverbs. I don't know if anybody's ever had much. You know, that's kind of a new thing where you want to throw up your food and, and don't eat. I, let me just say this. Again, it's about being in control. And I don't know if I can give you a, a Bible verse. Uh, uh, Corinthians, I can get some help here. Corinthians, he said, all things are lawful, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Uh, that's not 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not sure what chapter they give me that, if you would, there, Jeffrey or somebody. Uh, I, I'll not be brought under the power of anything. And I, I would just say to all of us as Christians, uh, you are supposed to be in charge. You rule your passions. You rule your habits. You rule, your, sir? 1 Corinthians 6.12. Would you show that right quick? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. Uh, so all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power all things are lawful, but all things aren't expedient. All things are lawful, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. And so, honestly, a lot of what you would call anorexia and bulimia and, and, and gluttony would be uh, you, you got a problem with yourself. You know, you're hating yourself. You feel bad about yourself. You're not pleased with the way you're made. So could I get Psalm 139? Uh, and, and you can look for the verse right quick back there, Jacob. Or Jeff will help you real quick. Psalm 139, you know what? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. What verse is that? Uh, 12, 14? First, uh, Psalm 139. Listen to this real quick if I could help you. I have always dealt with feeling insecure about my appearance. Uh, big head, short legs, you name it. When I was skinny, when I'm fat, it doesn't matter. I've always felt insecure about that. And that's the devil playing with us. You listen to what I'm going to tell you. You are right like you are. You, some of you girls, you know, the other day I saw a, it came through on a blog, uh, the uh, average woman in America is five foot four and weighs 135 pounds. The Victoria's Secret model is 5'10 and weighs 112. And that's who you want to be like. 5'10 and 112. You know what that means? She doesn't eat. She, I mean, she's like walking death. We got a word for her in Spanish. Uh, she's a, uh, huh? Moribunda. That means like walking dead. She like to walk. She could play on that, uh, that, I don't know, I've never seen it, but it's one about the zombies. That's about where she is. Uh, and, you know, honestly, you just need to accept the way God made you. You got to accept the way God made you. And, and you know what? Uh, God, God, God loves you just like you are. And part of what brings about our problems is, we don't realize what verse 14 says. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And you know, a person with some of those diseases is thinking one extra ounce makes me less desirable. You are desirable to God in your filthy condition, lost, much less after that. And so maybe your skin color is not the color you would have chosen, or, you know, like I didn't even know it till I was here at Vision, and one of the men was a political consultant that used to come to church here, and he told me one day, you don't look good in that suit. Your orange skin doesn't go with that color. And I said, I'll go home. I said, Betty, I said, I'm orange. <laughs> I didn't even know. I, didn't, I mean, I already knew I had a big head and short legs. Now I'm orange. <laughs> I'm going to quit eating. And that's when I started gaining more weight. Just joking. But here's the deal. You know what? Your, your nose is just the right nose for you. And your height and your color and your hair 
and all of that. You're just the way the Lord made you, and don't let the devil play games with you. Your father's happy with you. you, you, you when you look at your baby, when your baby's born, you love your baby. My daddy said when they saw me, he said I was the ugliest baby he had ever seen. I've been warped ever since. It ain't my fault. But the truth is, you know, you love your child. You love your child. What do you think your father does to you? The Heavenly Father loves you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. So I would tell you, my answer, what's the Bible say? I need a long time to put together a Bible study that I think could answer that well. But I would say to you this. The reason you're so worried about your appearance is you haven't accepted who God made you. You haven't accepted who God made you. So we have short man complex. You know, little guys, they want to fight with everybody because they're so little, they got to prove they're not little. Uh, you know, then, we, then we're mad about skin color. We're mad about birth defects. We're whatever. Don't do that. Just accept the way God made you and be proud that you're, you're his. He loves you and you belong to him. How about another one, brother? I am a parent. How can I let go of my adult children? Well, I think i got some experience with that. I have four adult children, and I want to strangle them most days. Uh, um, you know, can I just say this to all of you? Um, if you don't let go of them, they'll let go of you, and they'll leave. And the best thing you can do is turn them over to God. Um, sad but true, I left home at 17 and went to college. I was too good a boy to leave home angry. My brother decided to run away from home when we were smaller, and I beat him up. Locked him in the house and wouldn't let him leave. Went upstairs and said, he's trying to run away. And we don't run away. But when I was 17, I got a chance to go to college, and I chose the one. I got accepted in lots of them, and I chose the one that was the furthest away that I wanted to go to. You say, why? So I wouldn't have to come home. Only a couple of times a year. And uh, so... Here's what I would say to you. Raise your children the best way you can and start start letting go when they're two. So at two, you give them this little bit of stuff to do. Pick up your toy, one toy, and throw it in the basket, and you kind of let them learn to do that. When they're five or six, you give them a tad more responsibility. When they're ten, you give them a little more responsibility. Sometimes, because we live in this perverted world we live in, I mean, you can't, you can't leave your dog in the car without somebody calling the cops. And so you guys are like overly protective. So, you know, your kid's going to grow up. So let your kid grow up. Give your kid a chance. Um, um, know that your child's going to be out on their own. I would, when, when Chris got married, our oldest son, when he got married, I was so excited for him. I was so happy for him. And, and the reason was getting married was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. After getting saved, getting married is the greatest thing. And so on his wedding night, he was out of his mind happy like every kid is. Boy, I don't know about girls as much, but I know guys, man, they're really excited. And I was, I was almost as excited as him because I thought, if it's as good for him to have a woman like his mother as it has been for me, life is just about to take off on a stinking rocket for him. And so... I wanted my kids around us, and so when, when uh, Chris got 15 or 16, he got a tad rebellious against his mother. Boys, sometimes, if they got a lot of man in them, they don't do well with a woman telling them what to do because they kind of got this thing like, uh, I, I don't want a woman telling me what to do. 
And so they kind of get a little cantankerous. And so Betty was like, I'm going to show him who's boss. He was six foot one and 185 pounds. Betty's a lot shorter than that and a lot lighter, a lot lighter, 200 pounds lighter. Amen. Uh, and and uh, I told her, I said, let me handle him. You have a problem? Talk to me. Let me handle him. Let me deal with him. Because it was really my mother that drove me away from home. My dad was a lot more even-tempered, a lot more doing. So I'm going to challenge you. Here's the deal. God's going to take care of your kids. God's going to take care of your kids. Do the best you can. But you have to trust God sooner or later. So just start trusting little by little. And, and I, can I just say this? Adult kids can be more fun than small kids. I can sit at a table and have theological discussions. I can sit at a table and talk about ministry. This afternoon, my son David and I had this major discussion. And we're talking, and he says, I need to know where you stand on this, Dad, because both you, you, and, you and I are both going to be dealing with this person. And so I told him, he, go, he goes, man, I'm relieved. He said, because I was afraid you was going to be telling him something different than what I was going to tell him. And I said, well, buddy, I think if I'd have told what you're saying I was going to tell, I'd have been wrong. He said, I know, but I didn't know what you'd say. And we had a great talk. FaceTime, I'm looking at his ugly mug. He's still laying in a bed. He's telling me about a man who's going to do something for God, and he's excited. He's looking about it. That's a great feeling. There was a, there was a preacher, the guy that ordained me. Uh, he told me one time when Chris was little and I was telling him the greatest thing that happened after getting married was being a dad, and I was telling him how much fun it was to have about a four-year-old kid. And he said, if you think four is good, wait eight. He said, if you think eight's way good, wait till 15. And he said, they did, it's just better all along. And I can honestly tell you, if you'll treat them like adults, win their friendship, and be, uh, have a great relationship, it can be a wonderful time. And Betty and I have, I have a tremendous relationship with my adult children. Open, talking, discussing, and I would challenge you to work on that. Yes, sir. When did disciples get saved? Before they became apostles. Amen. All right. That was easy. Move on. Uh, we don't know. Uh, you know, at least two of them were already following John. Maybe more were following John. I don't know when they got saved. But basically, in the New Testament, if you check the book, the, 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 the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, you're going to find that being a disciple was getting saved. Unless you're talking about the, unless you're talking about the twelve apostles, when you became a disciple, is the day you decided, I'll hate my mama. I'll hate my brother. I'll take a stand for Jesus, and you love Jesus, and you took that stand. So the word disciples, the first word used for us in the Bible, in the New Testament. You won't get Christian until you get to after Acts 13, and after the, to the Christians at, at the Christians at, until you get to Antioch. Let me change that. I'm not sure about the chapter. Until you get to Antioch, you won't get Christian. That's a name they applied to us. The disciples were people that had decided to turn their back on the world and turn to Jesus. And so getting, becoming a disciple was getting saved, not for the twelve. They were already disciples and then named apostles. Next one. Why did you start vision when the need is so great outside the United States? That's a setup. Is that a staff member question? <clears throat> I have the biggest burden for the world that, uh, that you can possibly imagine. I really do. It's an every day, all the time. I think about all the time, all the people around the world that need the gospel. I think about, uh, I think about um, uh, China and, and uh, I think about India and I think about Indonesia and I think about South America. 
and I think about Africa, and I think about all those places. I spend hours every week dealing with missionaries. So why did I start vision? So you'll know where I stand and what's going on. Here's why I started vision. I really wanted a training center. I didn't necessarily want a church. I wanted somewhere I could bring young men and train them to take the gospel to the world. And uh, uh, we were training guys in Peru, but it was difficult for everybody to move to Peru and live in Peru. I think the situation there was a little bit more ideal, uh, uh, but if you weren't going to go to Latin America, it was hard for you to spend a couple of years with me and to get to know the ministry and learn the ministry. Jeff Bush is one of the early ones that started with me. Mark Coffey would be the earliest one that uh, you know that's worked with me and spent years alongside of me, and I was training them and helping them learn how to do the ministry, how to start multiple churches, how to train men, and how to disciple men. And uh, two years before I came home, in about 2003, uh, Aaron Bayshore and eight or five or six other guys met together in Ohio and planned my life for me. They wrote me a nine-page letter and said, if you really want to impact the world, you should move to America. You should take a church. You should be a pastor so students could come to you so you could train them so you could spend time with them and help them go overseas. And I got angry with them, and I told them, look, you're a bunch of little punks. I'm a grown man. You don't need to be trying to write my life story. Two years later, I was back in America pretty much doing what they recommended. They were pretty smart guys and pretty wise, I thought. And here's why. The captain of world evangelism everywhere is the pastor. The most important person in world evangelism is the pastor. The second most important group is the church. It's where people are born and bred and trained. Most American pastors are on an ego trip. How big can I get my church? How much money can I make? How famous can I get? How fun can I make my services? And they have totally lost sight of what Jesus wanted them to do in the beginning. When Jesus started the church, it's his church, not my church and not your church. He said, I have all power and I have all authority, and I want you to go into all the world preach the gospel to every creature. I want you to go to teach, make disciples. In other words, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and I want you to train them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And I looked around America, and very few churches, independent Baptist churches, are great about giving money. They give money, but they don't give young people. They give money, but they don't give their children. And so the unusual kids that are going to do something have to go off to one of our colleges. And when they go to that college, the director of that college will do everything that he can to keep them in America. He'll do it, he doesn't do it on purpose. He doesn't do it to be negative. He does it subconsciously saying, boy, we need churches in America when there are churches on every corner. But what if there would be a church that would be radically given to training young people? willing to sacrifice by having people that we love leave on a regular basis as we train them and get rid of them, and it hurts every time. What if they would give money? What if they'd give time? What if they'd set an example? What if they would help get people outside the country? And so honestly, if I weren't pastoring a church like Vision, I would go back to the mission field tomorrow. I think it would take me less than a year to raise my support, uh, and I could go back to the mission field. But I believe this church... Excuse me what I'm going to say there right here. I believe you are more important to the cause of world evangelism than anything else you know going on anywhere. You, not me, you. Not just because you give a million dollars. Money has never been the major problem in world evangelism. We've always been able to get money. We haven't been able to get men. And this church 
you have let people come through here. Our first song leader is now in Thailand. Our second song leader is on his way to China. Our third song leader is on his way to China. Our fourth song leader wants to go to India, and you just keep giving. It's frustrating because as soon as your kids fall in love with some of these people, they leave. But had you been in the church in the New Testament who was so on fire for Jesus, it would have never been about how big a building could you get. It would have never been how many could you have in attendance. It would have never been about how cool the service was. All the junk going on today and all the church growth stuff and everything that goes on, every big conference in America is anti-Bible. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, boy, that would made a pastor visit me, mad at me right there. He is mad right now. But it's the truth. Acts chapter 13, the main pastor, Barnabas, and the next main guy, Saul, they left. They stood up after three years and said, that's it, guys. Got to get to the world. Leaving you three guys we've trained, we're gone. We're out to go do something else. That's the New Testament way. You didn't find church growth things. You found get the gospel to the world. And so I really believe with all my heart that I am doing more for the cause of world evangelism by being the pastor of Vision Baptist Church than I could overseas. That's not meant to butter you up. That's not meant to say nice things about you. It's meant to say this. The key to world evangelism is the local church. The key. You are important. Not the missionaries. They're our soldiers. We're the incubator. We're the incubator. We bring them in. We warm them up. We're the greenhouse. We get them prepared. We give them tools. We let them do stuff. And when a guy like Bo Carpenter can go out and start a church... He's young, and he doesn't know what he's doing. He came here. When he came, I don't mean it's ugly, but when he came, if you remember the day he got here, he don't look nothing like that anymore. He's a totally different guy. It was vision's work. God through us that that grew him up. You're doing that all over the world. Have you ever thought about where you got missionaries? Have you ever thought about where you got members? So I started Vision Baptist Church. To be blunt honest, to be just what it is, you are great. He is great, but you are great. Your heart, your giving, your loving all these missionaries, your being willing to give. You know, we, uh, I was concerned about Faith Promise. I'm still concerned. I'll always be concerned. But today, Faith Promise offering almost got covered for the month. We almost got caught up for last month. You are great giving people. What can I tell you? You are what I wanted to see. And I'm not what I think you need as a pastor. I don't think I'm anywhere near what I ought to be as a pastor. But I will tell you this. You are making a difference. You are making a difference. You sit here in the States and you say, I don't see how we're making a difference. You make a difference in China. You make a difference in India. You make a difference all over the world. And uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I really did not come home because I didn't like it. I didn't come home because I couldn't do it there. I came home because I believed that a place like Vision would make so much difference around the world. If I could, I'd have pastors' meetings. And I would get pastors together and I'd help them understand the burden. But pastors don't want to hear about that. What they want to hear about is how can I get a bigger paycheck? How can I look better? How can I have fancier buildings? How can I have an exciting program? I need my face on a billboard. That's where we live. But in the New Testament, it was, no, 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 none of that. Let's get the gospel to the world. Next question now that everybody's mad at me. In your opinion, is the woman with the bleeding issue the mother of the girl Jesus raised from the dead in Matthew 9? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't think she did a lot in world evangelism. Next question. <laughs> I don't have any idea. 
What can people do to be involved in world evangelism if they aren't a pastor preacher? Who set these questions up? Robert, did you type these up? That's your question. I can tell by the guilty look on your face. Y'all can swap that one. I just ran it long enough. Get one that's not Robert's question. Is that Robert's question? What do you think is our church's greatest weakness? Better put, what is the number one thing we can do better? I think we ought to do more to reach our area. If anything, I think what Cannon does as he leads the visitation, I think what I fail at is I don't get as involved in that because I let other things take up my time. Uh, I think that, I, 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 Lord willing, I will be here this Saturday, and I think I should be more out knocking doors and inviting people, and uh, I shouldn't let my schedule push me to where I don't do that. Uh, and uh, I think probably the greatest weakness, you know, I really wish this church had at least the number of African-Americans as, uh, as the percentage represents in this area. I wish this church had as many Indians, as many Koreans, and as many Hispanics, at least the percentage. I want our church to, I wish they'd come in here and you get a sample of the whole world. Now, Brother Ermler's from California. If you ever go to a California church, you ain't never been in a church like that. A California church is like uh, everybody's there. I mean, we are, we, I rejoice when we have 15 or 20 nationalities. They have 15 or 20 in the bathroom when the rest of them are still in church. There's 100 in the church. And guys, I love a California church. So I would just say let's reach our community. Let's do more to get the gospel to our community, and I think that would be it. Get more, uh, more in discipleship. Outside of that, if I could say this to you, I, I don't think you're helping enough. Boy, I'm just being honest. I just don't think, I think foundations, uh, we ought to work that harder. You ought to get with John on that. I know that John meets uh, morning, evening, and night with people, but I don't think you ought to do it alone. I think that uh, there are men in this room, and you sell yourself short. You are men of God. You love Jesus. You know the Bible. You care about souls. Uh, you have been faithful to church. You're a big giver, but you're not sharing any of that. And if you could just get with some other people, pick a young, even some of the missionaries. And I'd love it if a brand new guy that comes into our church that's a young fella headed towards uh, doing something for God, and I wish he could go to eat with you once a week, once a month. Take him out and buy him a, take him out and buy him a, a just buy him a dry hot dog and a glass of water. But to sit with you, I'm not teasing. I know you say, well, it's expensive. Oh, then just go, go buy a cup of coffee and go to go to uh, McDonald's. Don't go to Starbucks. It costs too much there. But at McDonald's, I think you can buy one pretty cheap. Just sit there and talk to him. Share your life with him. Everything I know, I learned from guys like you. I never went to Bible college. I never went to Bible college. I almost thank God for that. I, I never went to Bible college, and, and I got messed up enough as it is. But people like you in church taught me. I remember them old deacons. I remember them old ladies that taught me. They were probably 35 and 40. But, man, I remember them. You know, I was three, and I, they looked like they were, they'd been around since, since Methuselah. You, you know that. Three years old. You, you young ladies think you're young, but the kids don't think you're that young. <laughs> they think you're pretty old. And, and you all taught me. You all taught me. People just like you. So I, if I had my dream come true, here it comes. Chuck, Micah, Tony, Steve, Ty, Brett, you guys would be all week, you'd be saying, hey, I'm going to, let's go sit down together. You don't have to, you say, well, I don't have any big, deep Bible lesson to teach you. You can teach you Bible. You can teach about being a man. You can teach you about being a husband. You can teach you about paying his bills. You can teach you about being solid. 
You've been around, you've been around buddy. You are the rock of Gibraltar of a church. He needs that. You teach about facing adversity. You say, well, I don't have a big lesson to teach him. I don't want you to teach him a lesson. I want you to be his friend. I mean, we learn from you. And I, so if I had my choice, uh, that's what I would say. Uh, I'll give you one more. And we'll save Robert's questions for next week. I would say to you, I would say to you, uh, I, I challenge you to be real good yoke fellows. Uh, there's a, some, we got some good yoke fellows. You're really yoking up good. There's one or two that I have, that are just really knocking it out of the park. They need you. This church is far more important than you think it is. Uh, they think about you. They're not even members here, and they think about you. I'm talking about the, you know, so many of the guys that come through here. They think about you. And if you just would stay in touch with them and just do that, you could make a difference. I have this. I have this unreal relationship with the missionaries that you know. But you could have it too. Never, you're not going to replace me. I mean, I'm the old guy who did the mission work before, and I'm a pastor today. But they'd love you in a way they would never love me. And it would be a great blessing to them. It would be a great blessing to them. And uh, you know, Jeff can sit back there and say, well, I don't know what I'd give them, but good night, look at the boys he's raised. Raised great men. So if he sat down with a missionary, all he's got to do is just be Jeff. He said, what do I got to do? Well, I don't know. How about being you? You've done pretty good being you up to now. <laughs> and you do a good job of that. And you've turned out great children and you're serving God. I, man, I wish you'd get more involved like that. If I had my druthers, that's a word from Tennessee. Anybody ever heard of druthers? <laughs> you're a hick, aren't you, buddy? All right. Let's do this. Let's take an offering. How about that? This message was recorded at Vision Baptist Church in Alfred, Georgia. For more information, log on to www.visionbaptist.com where you can find our service times, location, contact information, and more audio and video recordings.